You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number 46. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Benzel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, that's my main blog, and also Teaching Reading with Bob Books, which is where I keep my line of printable phonics lessons. You can hear more from me on my other podcast, Aftercast. My co-hosts today are Misty Winkler and Pam Barnhill. Misty is a second-generation homeschooler with five kids and too many projects. She writes about practical classical homeschooling and organizing attitudes at Simply Convivial. Pam is a speaker, podcaster, blogger at pambarnhill.com, and author of the newly released book, Better Together, Strengthen Your Family, Simplify Your Homeschool, and Savor the Subjects That Matter Most. This episode is sponsored by Misty's Brain Dump Guide. Do you have a lot to do and too much to keep track of? Of course you do. Misty's all-new Brain Dump Guide will help you take the cluttered jumble inside your head and straighten it out so you can step out of your scattered overwhelmed mode and go into strategic creative mode. Download the guide and get started today by visiting simplyconvivial.com. Declutter your head with a brain dump. It's cheap, fast therapy we can all use. Today's episode features a discussion of Charles Dickens' famous story, A Christmas Carol, which is my favorite Christmas story. Naturally, Misty and Pam tried to ruin it for me, but I am undaunted, and I think you will be too. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. Let's start off with our Scalay every day. Who wants to go first? I will. I will. Okay, so uh, my Scalay every day, even though I don't do it every single day, though I wish I did, it's just a matter (laughs) of finding time, is my dance classes. Yeah. Yeah. So they are so much fun. I am really, really enjoying myself, but it's funny. So... I think, I don't know. I've never done tap dance before. I've done ballet before. Um, I took ballet for two or three years before Olivia was born. And I enjoy ballet a lot. And, you know, I walked into the first ballet class and the ballet teacher was like, yeah, in the middle of class, we kind of do some workout stuff because, you know, I don't want anybody to get bored with ballet. I'm thinking, who could get bored with ballet? You know, (laughs) why do I want to stop? I mean, if I wanted to work out, I would go to the gym or something. But (laughs) so anyway, since then, we've kind of turned her around and she's giving us harder (laughs) stuff. She was giving us really easy ballet stuff and everything. So it's gotten good. It's gotten much better. It's gotten a little challenging, which is a good thing. And then I've never done tap before. And my tap teacher, she told me last night, they were, she was showing us something new called a time step. And 
I just kept trying over and over to get it. She looked at me and she said, you're never going to get this the first time. And she says, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is, so these are good lessons for me to remember, you know, I'm not going to do something perfectly the first time. This is something that's not easy. It's something I have to work on, you know, so all very good lessons, but just so enjoyable. And the challenge of it is a lot of fun. So cool. So anyway, it was my anniversary. We celebrated our 24th wedding anniversary. Actually, we didn't celebrate our 24th wedding anniversary. (laughs) Thank you. But we basically told each other happy anniversary. Hopefully, we're going to go out to dinner soon. It's just been too crazy here. My husband, we we have this policy where we buy each other what we want. And uh, (laughs) I bought myself a tap dance floor. So, Oh, wow. I'm excited. Ah, Nice. So I can can tap dance at home. I can practice the stuff I'm not going to get on the first try. I have to be honest, tap has always looked so hard to me. I don't know why, but I'm like, how do you make your feet move like that? That just looks really hard. It it's challenging, but it's fun. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's so hard that it's it's not fun. But mm. I watched the girl who's been there like a really long time, who's been doing it obviously since she was a child, and her feet are just they're so much more flexible and they move so much faster. And mm. so, but I can see how just doing it over and over and over and over again is it's like anything else. The more you do it the better you're going to get at it. So it's, yeah. I can definitely see it's not something that you just, I mean, I'm sure there are people who have an immediate talent for it, but it's one of those things that just takes the repetition yeah, to build the skill. And I bet that's something that'll transfer to other areas in life then too. I hope so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you, Misty? I don't know if this will be quite cheating, but my school every day is what yours was last time. <laughs> That's okay. I That's guess okay. I could use, I, I just started James Clear's Atomic Habits. Woo-hoo. I wasn't letting myself finish until I finished my other book. I'm putting it in the easy category. I don't know. Okay. So, cause I have my brandy checklist, my mother culture checklist. Woo-hoo. And there, so there's stiff I made mine stiff, moderate, and easy because I don't read novels during the during school times. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I had made myself finish the other book in the easy category before I picked that one up. Maybe that's what I should have picked then because I don't think I've mentioned that one. <laughs> Come to think of it, I was looking at my book stack thinking I've already talked about this one. I've already talked about this one, but right. I'm still reading it. <laughs> Do you want to switch? We'll but I, just, switch. <laughs> I just finished uh, Even Exile. By Rebecca Merkel. Oh, I haven't read that yet. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. So, what's it actually about? I gotta ask. It is I just like the title. <laughs> <laughs> it's discussing the idea of femininity, so and feminism. But I wouldn't say it's a book that would that answers feminism so much as it answers anti-feminism overreactions. Oh, interesting. So like, yeah, like the uber patriarchy kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So she gives a history of feminism. And part of what she says in it is that feminism was an understandable reaction to the ideas of femininity uh, at the time. And so going back to the way things were just before feminism, both waves, she talks about the two waves is only setting ourselves up 
for yet another round. Like we would just be continuing this cycle if, say, we wanted to go back to a 50s housewife idea or the Victorian idea that we need. And the Victorians are your favorite, right, Miss? <laughs> right. Of all eras of history, those are your favorite. So well, she's- we're going to get into them today. So <laughs> that's true. Bah humbug. That's why we chose this. <laughs> um, so it was really fascinating. And uh, I've heard her speak before. So I was a little bit nervous because sometimes well, she's very funny, but sometimes she'll kind of overstate a point or make a kind of outrageous metaphor to make her point. But her book was really yes. good. <laughs> So I was glad. I was glad. It's still funny, cool. but it was all on point and all. Yeah, pretty, pretty interesting. I have it on my list. So I'm glad I got a good review from you. <laughs> I give it, give it a thumbs up. Okay, so my school every day. Yeah, mine's kind of weird. But um, I, part, I mean, part of the reason why I'm doing this is because we have recorded so many times so close together that I ha- have pretty much ran out of books that I would like to talk about. <laughs> Because I really should finish books. I, you know, I really, I was trying so hard to finish certain books because I have finished zero books in October. Like I've read a lot, but I finished zero books in October and I was trying really hard to finish something by the 31st and I'm, I didn't. So <laughs> I can't even brag about that. I've, I've, got, I've got nothing. So with that said, I decided that dropping books is part of my school every day. And so I thought I would share that. And because <laughs> here's the thing twice now in October, one of the reasons why I didn't finish any books is because twice I dropped a book and I don't, I don't do this a lot, but twice I got talked into buying books by someone that I really knew better than to trust, but I purchased it because they were like, Oh, you really should read this. It's just so great. It's so wonderful. It's so blah, blah, blah. And I mean, it's dumb. Cause I, I spent money on these and I should have known better, but anyway, I'll end up in these situations where I feel like I spent money on this, therefore I should finish it. So I have this like feeling of obligation to my books. And I, let's see, was reading The Intellectual Life, as you know, Mm -hmm. which I also haven't finished. And then I was reading Charlotte Mason. And I can't remember who the third person was, but it was like in a really short period of time, all three of them emphasized the idea of reading the best books. And I was like, I am trying to make myself finish this book because I paid money for it. And that is like the dumbest reason ever. And I'm reading these people who are like, your time is best spent. You don't, you have limited time, so you should spend it reading the best books. And the reason why I want to drop this book is not because it's too hard and I don't want to expend the energy or anything like that, which I mean, I think there's even times to drop books for that reason. I'm just doing it because I have some sort of financial investment that makes me feel obligated. And it's like $5. It's not like I spent a lot of money on these books. It's so dumb. Your time is worth more than that. (laughs) Exactly. It was so dumb. And so anyway, I realized I am reading these books and it's like torture because like one of them, the advice is terrible. The author, I'm not going to name it. The author is self-righteous to the point where she thinks it's okay. So she tells stories about herself that I'm like, this behavior is not okay. And she bragged about it in a book like it was okay. (laughs) So with all of that said, 
This, this, these are the low quality books that are populating my library. I don't even know why. And I just, I felt such freedom. I don't remember who it was who got the last like argument in, if it was Charlotte Mason or if it was Sertelange or whoever, but just reminding myself that Scalay is about pursuing virtue and developing our character and the intellect and all these things. And I'm like, this book is a complete waste of time. Like it's the worst possible kind of twaddle because I don't even like it. <laughs> so. Anyway, so my delay every day is dropping books. Good for you. Because I think we should we should all give ourselves permission. I mean, we say things like we should read the best books or whatever, but then we end up invent, or at least I do, inventing these convoluted rules that obligate me to dumb books. And so I'm experiencing liberty. I have de- I have declared my freedom from dumb books. Excellent. That, there we go. That's my story. Yeah, I think that's great because <laughs> we say that. Yeah, I mean, we could make a whole episode out of this. I mean, we say that we should read the best books, but that doesn't mean that we necessarily discern the best books from, you know, you've only got so many methods. I mean, seriously, we could do a whole episode on discerning a good book and only so many ways to do it. And when you have a book that comes recommended to you and you give it a try and you get in the middle of it and you realize, no, then what do you do? So yeah, hmm. got me thinking. I'm thinking firewood, like you could burn this. <laughs> well, I mean, no, I mean, what do you do? Like giving yourself permission to drop it because you're right. There's yeah. so many things that hold us back from, uh, you know, for you, you feel this obligation because you've spent the money. But, you know, for somebody like me, it's like, well, I'm not giving up. I'm not a quitter. Right. So, yes. Yeah, I think there's part of that, too. I'm always, we don't quit. Vencils don't quit. I'm always telling my kids that. And I, apparently it got into my head. But I'm like, but shouldn't we quit if it's dumb? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those moments when you're like, I, you invented some activity for your kids and halfway through you're like, man, I wish we were quitters. <laughs> like, so bad. Hmm. You're reading Finish by John Acuff, right, Brandy? I am, but I haven't managed to finish it. <laughs> well, I was just thinking because I haven't read it. I ordered a copy. It hasn't arrived yet, but it came recommended to me by a friend. I was hearing the summary and I think one of his points in there is that we set up rules for ourselves that prevent us from finishing. So this kind of sounds more like you had a rule that was trying to make you finish when you didn't. Finishing would have been so true. (laughs) Putting this away and saying, uh, never mind. This book is a mistake. He, um, I like that book so much because it's one of the few books that has made me laugh out loud. (laughs) Mm. I mean, I shouldn't say that, but it's nonfiction. I think it's pretty yeah. hard to pull off a nonfiction book that makes you laugh out loud. Like you could tell a funny story, like a, like a Wodehouse or something. Right. Like he's funny. But this is more like he's telling jokes like you would tell maybe in a talk that you're giving or something. And But they, they make me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Which apparently he's going to have a stand-up tour or night That's or something. That's what I heard. So. I heard a podcast with him. Well, and he, he was the one behind, I think, Stuff Christians Like, that humor site. Oh, I did not know that. No wonder his name sounded familiar. Now that you say that, that I better I better quick fact check that before you uh, publish it. But I'm pretty sure. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, I did. I picked it up. I picked it up off of Kirsty's counter and just flipped to a random spot and yeah, started laughing. So (laughs) I was like, okay, I'll read this. 
<laughs> yeah, he's funny. And I have I have found found him helpful with trying to coach others to finish. But I did find myself in there because I, he's talking all about perfectionism. And I'm like, I'm just not a perfectionist. And so I was trying to find where people who can't finish that have other character issues <laughs> were going to be located in this book. Um, he still calls it perfectionism. I, I actually don't think that's what it is. But he did finally get I got to a part where he talks about the person who has a zillion ideas. So you're like halfway through. And then this other thing seems to you more interesting than finishing the thing that you're supposed to be working on. Anyway, that would be any NP personality type. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's rough being me guys. (laughs) (laughs) Oh goodness. Uh, Okay. On that note. (laughs) All right. So our topical discussion, this is the Christmas episode and we are discussing um, I had to make sure I'm like, is it the Christmas Carol or a Christmas, a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens? What were you saying? I was giving you background music. <laughs> Christmassy. She was making it Christmassy. Oh, that was, it was really nice. I like it. <laughs> uh, so I have been, I mean, I know we like created some notes so that we weren't all over the place. Which I'm I'm not setting a good precedent at this point. But when I was driving today, I thought, oh, I think I came up with a thesis for us. I love a thesis. Let me see if I can state this in a single sentence as I am supposed to. And it is that in A Christmas Carol, Scrooge has an educational existential experience that orders his disordered affections. Hmm. I thought... All of this, I think the whole thing can be seen, like if since we want to relate this to classical education, right, and homeschooling and all this kind of stuff, this is a picture of having affections ordered, but on a mass scale, so like his whole life. Does it? It does. I think that's true. So my question is, is it an accurate portrayal of how such existential, what was it? Educational existential experiences actually occur? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. So you've read this lots of times. You say you read it every year, but it's been a really long time since I've read it. And so I was just kind of irritated most of the time that I was actually listening to it on 2X. So (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, I love this book so much. Well, okay, so if you think about it, though, there is, like, within Christmas literature or whatever you want to call it, there is this ongoing theme of sort of, like, grumpiness or whatever becoming and transforming into joy. Because we have, like, the Grinch, right? His heart grows two sizes. We have this book called The Grumpy Shepherd. It's basically the same kind of thing. He he goes and sees baby Jesus and becomes ungrumpified or whatever you want to call it. So basically, there's one trope for Christmas. Yeah, stories. and it's kind of. You know, here's what I want to know: Are they all modern? With Dickens being the very earliest modern, the very first. Yeah, yeah, probably. It sounds like the Grumpy Shepherd's modern. I would imagine yeah, it's it's translated from like the ancient Greek or anything. I think like it's that. like circa 1985. That's yeah. what it looks like, anyway. Did because Thomas we've... Kincaid do the artwork? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Sorry. I'm sure it's a delightful book. I'm wondering, so it makes me curious if Dickens kind of started 
this idea of Christmas spirit being a thing. He is the man who invented Christmas. <laughs> Did you not see the movie? <laughs> Did you not see the movie? No, I didn't see the I movie. I love that movie. I love that movie so much. It was so a much. great movie. Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. I do love that movie. That's what I did with my kids on St. Nicholas Day last year. We didn't have any theater in town playing it. So we drove like 90 minutes away to go watch that movie. And it was totally worth it. (laughs) It was so fun. I watched it on the plane to GHC this summer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, did you? (laughs) I did. Kind of a weird time of year to watch it. (laughs) Hey, well, I needed something to do on the plane ride. What can I say? I think, yeah, I mean, it's a similar, it's a similar story. I mean, you get that all of the time, but I do think it, I do think it's a modern thing and it started with him. So Misty, are you going to rain on my whole Christmas parade? Yeah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I am not loving this book. (laughs) There there are things about the book that I really like, but it it all has to do with like the language. I think it has one of the best first lines and first paragraphs, you know, it just is great. It's almost like, where's Pa going with that axe? I mean, it's just a great first line. Uh, You know, Scarlett O'Hara was not beautiful. It's just, it goes like right there. But Hmm. it's preachy. Definitely. Yeah, I guess so. It's like Like all of (laughs) my favorite Victorian books. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like one of those moralistic books what okay i object (laughs) okay if you're gonna object like it is immoral right so what is the basis of scrooge's transformation where does his transformation come from Hmm. well i think there's a softening of his heart as a consequence of his multiple experiences so We start with him facing the painful parts of his past. You know, why, why? I mean, there is a little bit of that, like, psychology part. Why is he the way that he is? Well, he's a sinner who's made choices. We see that when he chooses money over the girl and that kind of thing. But you also see him being unloved by his family, locked alone at boarding school at Christmas, you know, all that kind of thing, right? So maybe that's why he hates Christmas is because for him it was never a good experience or whatever. We see his heart softening, like he remembers his old boss who made Christmas nice for everybody and how he felt about him. And he understands that he has the power to make people happy or unhappy. I think that was a big thing. Anyway, but I mean, ultimately, do you think it's because he's also facing his own mortality at the end? Like that seems to be the zinger, right? I think you could read, and I think that's why this story is actually so successful and has kicked off so many other versions of it is that it is a transformation story, even about Christmas, that doesn't have Christ. Hmm. You think he doesn't? Well, where where is it? Well, I always, I guess I thought that the reason why the ghost had 1900 siblings or something was because he was supposed to be representative of Christianity in some way. You can read it in, but maybe I'm. But it's—I don't know. I didn't see it there. It's not overt. I mean, that's for sure. I think I took him as a symbol, but I mean, I—it's possible. And I—I think also, I mean, what is one of the things left out 
that I would say the things often left out are any of the things that would maybe point to Christianity a little bit. But my understanding is Dickens was somewhat had had at least some animosity toward the church. So it's like the beginnings of all the secular goody things about Christmas. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, well, we're going to have Christmas without religion, mm-hmm. but it's okay because we're going to be generous and kind and love everyone. <laughs> like Christmas itself is sanctifying. Ah, interesting. And not Chris, not because it's worship, but because it's it's this kind of idea of generosity and noticing other people and like being cheery, passing on goodwill, but for no other reason than to enjoy life yourself better. And mm. and you know, poor poor Scrooge just. Had a bad childhood, so what else? <laughs> you know, it's like I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I, I definitely think it's a little bit more than that because it is a bad childhood, and the bad childhood may have been part of his temptation. But we definitely see avarice because he comes to love money more than the girl. I mean, yeah, that's true. I, def- I, I think that's. I definitely think we see his sin and not just his victimhood. And one might be tied with the other, but he's culpable for the for that choice. So he, his love goes to money instead of to people. and But that's the plane yes. on which the story stays. It's will it be money or will it be people, society, but it's never love God so that you can love other people. It's just switch your affection from money to people, and then you're good to go. Okay, I'll you. I'll grant you that because there is this idea. You know what is what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So there's the horizontal and the vertical love, and he's staying on the horizontal for this story. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to look at. Is there a body of Christmas literature that is before? And I'm trying to think of what it is. Or is this it? Is this the first? Um, you know, kind of like Poe was the modern, was he detective story, short story? I can't remember. But, or is there any Christmas literature before A Christmas Carol? Or was this kind of the first? Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. It kind of seems like the biblical Christmas story itself might have sufficed <laughs> before, <laughs> or like more. You know, there were medieval morality plays. They did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's like I keep waiting for Linus to show up in this and say, <laughs> "This is the real meaning of Christmas, Ebenezer Scrooge." And never <laughs> I mean, where's Linus when you need him? Right. So it's like, like said, Christmas itself is sanctifying here. So because it's the spirits of Christmas past, present and future that affect the change. So it's Mm. as if celebrating Christmas alone and by celebrating Christmas, like what does that mean in this book? It means being generous and sharing relationship, you know, being in relationship with other people. And all of that's good stuff. I mean, that's right. all good stuff, but it's yeah. not, 
you know, so if our affections are ordered here, it's like we've got the veneer of the ordered affections without the reason behind the ordered affections. Are you guys trying to ruin my favorite Christmas book? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we're just too cynical, Misty. I don't know. (laughs) That could be. (laughs) Don't invite INTJs to your book club if you like the book. My husband will say, what did you do today? I talked about grumpiness with two grumpy people. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like there was much popular literature before the Victorian era, because that's when the novel is being, I mean, the novel is is still a pretty new genre and popular literature, mass produced books or that kind of thing is still actually a new Thing. So before that, there might have been oral tradition, stories being told around the fire or being passed on. Hmm. And so that makes sense that it would be centered more on the account in the gospel and some saint stories. Yeah. Just historically, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm Googling. Just in case I, I was Googling too, and I, I'm not coming up with my search terms didn't come up with something. So maybe my Google foo is lacking, but I can't think of anything. And so it seems like this story has kind of captured, you either get this or you get, you know, the Clemens version in it. Clemens, what's his name of Santa Claus? Yeah. It, it, those are your two choices and neither of them have anything to do with baby Jesus, mm-hmm. but that's, pretty much what every Christmas movie, book, story, everything is is based on. So Dickens is possibly the first one to take the Christ out of Christmas. Oh, man. <laughs> this is so I painful. That when I was reading it, yeah. Wow. <laughs> this is sad right now. I'm going to send Brandy some candy canes in the mail. Where's Angelina? She could probably find Christ with me. <laughs> Oh, she could totally point this back to the gospel. She could. I'm inept compared to her. Yeah, Misty's right, though. It it almost seems like it's, you know, it's for its own sake. Yeah, you could read this. You could read Christianity into this. And you could make interpretations that are are true. I mean, true to truth. (laughs) But they wouldn't necessarily becoming from the text itself. Right. You could also read this from a secular standpoint and say, yes. look, here are all the things that are great and wonderful about Christmas. And, and there's nothing, yeah, there's, there's not necessarily anything in here that's going to, I hate to say not point you to the truth, but I mean, you could, you could totally read this from a secular viewpoint and, and be perfectly justified in uh, having a Christmas with no Christ. Yeah. It, is that, does that make sense? I, I think I'm trying to, I think I'm saying. No, what I'm I can, I can see that. Uh, well, and I don't really think we ever see any non-Christians uncomfortable with Dickens story. Mm-hmm. Though I will say, I think a lot of people don't catch some of the things like they don't catch that Scrooge actually goes through all 12 days of Christmas. Like, I don't know if you caught at the end, there's a child's 12th night party that he sees. So his time with Christmas present actually lasts for all the days of Christmas, which I always found interesting. Anyway, like I think there's certain elements, at least of like liturgical elements that 
people miss, but also are left out of any like movie version that you would ever see of it. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. But those are, th- that's like literary structure. I liter like as literature, it's great. The yeah. language is wonderful. The metaphors are wonderful. The structure is, yeah. has depth. That's like the 12 days of Christmas thing. Like that's just yeah. depth of structure. You come full circle, but, you know, yeah. in the yeah. last Dave, he's, he's coming back to all the people that he wronged in the first Dave. And yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's excellent literature. Thank you. <laughs> she said something it's nice just about not true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I did. I looked up the most famous Christmas stories or whatever, and it is interesting. I don't really see the only thing that looks to me like it's older, maybe is I'm trying to see when this was Hans Christian Andersen apparently had some, some Christmassy type stories. So that would have preceded Dickens a little bit, but everything else is modern. The gift of the Magi, the Grinch that stole Christmas life and adventures of Santa Claus. Yeah. And, and all of them are, I mean, just all of them are about sacrificing yourself for, for others and generosity and things like that. And that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But I I don't know how, I mean, I'd have to read, I'd have to read some of them again to see which ones go back to the reason that we can do this. You know, if it, if it were not for the incarnation, we wouldn't have, I mean, that's what makes us able to do it. Right. Right. Oh, okay. So we do have a transformation like that in that the picture book, the Christmas miracle of Jonathan Toomey, where we have the grumpy guy that learns to have joy again, but there is an, there's a human encounter, but there's also this making of the nativity. So I feel like there's like an implicit experience with Christ kind of in the story, if that makes sense, which that's a modern book too. But I was trying to think like, is there any book where we see even some mention of Christ in it? This is interesting to me. I never thought of it on this level because I'm apparently really shallow. And <laughs> I don't think so. I, I mean, and I think it's okay to enjoy this book, but I think if you're going to, you know, and, and I enjoyed this book and I enjoy the story and it's a fun story, but is it, uh, it, I mean, there's definitely, there comes a point where you're like, everybody is drawn I mean, Scrooge is is drawn completely bad without being evil. And then the Cratchits are drawn, you know, completely good, almost to the point of being sappy. And I don't I don't know. It it really did feel. It felt preachy. Mm -hmm. It's just it's a it's a good works thing. And that's all without a religious motivation. I mean, it's almost a selfish motivation, right? Because it's fear of, and not even fear of hell or fear of judgment as it's, you're going to have, you're going to live with regret. It seems like that was the Marley's Mm -hmm. motivation. You know, that's what Marley was trying to communicate was you will have regret after death. So reconsider (sighs) Your, hmm. your life, which is different from the fear of judgment. Like nothing is, nothing is outside 
yeah, it was almost like it was Marley's own feeling of, of what he had done, his own judgment upon himself that he was trying to save Scrooge from, not from somebody else's judgment on him. Mm-hmm. There's nothing outside of, of Marley's experience that, you know, it is his own experience. And then you could even say the ghosts of Christmas, I mean, they are external, they're coming to Scrooge, but it's really himself. This is a conversion happening out of his own self because it's mm-hmm. his, his mm-hmm. memories, his current life, and his future life. This is all still actually self-focused, trying to get him to be not self-focused. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of the, this, what my pastor likes to call solus bootstrapus. <laughs> Just pick yourself up by the bootstraps. That's how we get better. <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's funny. <laughs> it's the American doctrine. Seriously. Oh my gosh. I love it. <laughs> See, okay. So I came into this and I was like, this is an interesting thing to me about how it would tie back to some of our previous years where we talked about attitude, right? And we've talked about don't be the white witch, right? That's been our thing. That was our hashtag last year, right? Don't be the white witch. And I, I mean, I guess for me, I kind of think about this in terms of what well, I mean. And I mean, I read this a lot to my children and I don't say all this to them, but I feel like the temptation to be grumpy about the work of Christmas that it seems like a lot of us feel. I think sometimes in my mind, I'm like, don't be a Scrooge. Like, don't be him. He was tight fisted and he's just like, He doesn't want to spend the money and he doesn't want the hassle and he doesn't really want to love anybody but himself. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I think I've enjoyed just the symbolism of an aspect of Christmas being me learning to love others when sometimes I don't feel like it. But I am saying that in an already Christian context for myself. Right. The lesson I can learn from Scrooge, I don't need a conversion experience. I need a sanctification experience. (laughs) Right. Well, and I think that we can look at it that way and say, who am I being more like? Which character am I more like in my situation? And then we can say, maybe what creates Scrooge's transformation is not the direction I'm going to look for my own transformation, but I still can look at which character am I more like and what's behind say the right celebration of Christmas. It's, yeah. It's generosity. And it's, it, it is this relationship aspect. I think one of the things I was, I noticed was how Scrooge is closing himself off from relationship, from inter- even interacting with people. Like his goal is to close a conversation or to <laughs> not have a conversation at all if possible. And oh, I don't yeah, see I what's can- wrong with that. <laughs> I was like, all three of us suddenly feel slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> like, why are you talking? Do you have a real reason that you have to talk to me right now? No? Okay, good. Go do your work. <laughs> wow, I may have said something like that last week. <laughs> or today. There's a reason I'm glad off it's my not just phones. me. <laughs> it's definitely not just you. You know, okay, I have to say. As far as characters, I feel like the nephew, when people talk about this book, everybody focuses on Tiny Tim and Scrooge. 
and a little bit of Bob Cratchit. And the, I feel like the nephew gets overlooked. And I love the nephew so much because of the way that Scrooge is such a jerk. Like I was thinking about this, that, you know, people talk about they have relatives that are difficult or whatever, but this is like the relative who doesn't want to show up is completely disagreeable the whole time. Doesn't come. And yet year yeah. after year, the nephew comes by and invites him to Christmas. That's actually a really profound thing. Cause the nephew really seems to be the embodiment of Christmas joy. I love the lines, the things that he says, because Scrooge kind of criticizes them, you know, like, what, what do you have? What reason do you have to be merry? You're poor enough. And the nephew talks about, there are many things from which I might have derived good by which I have not profited, I dare say. Christmas among the rest. Well, and even so much the zinger before that, he's like, what right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do love his comeback. Fabulous line. <laughs> And I think that the nephew comes the closest to, I think that you can see in some of his responses that most likely he actually is coming out of a Christian charity. I yeah. mean, I don't think that it's a, it's just Christmas. It doesn't seem like a, this is just Christmas time. It's sort of thing, but it is a, you know, your family more like outreach, you know, that's what yeah. it comes across yeah. as. Well, and if we look, uh, it's on page six in my book, he says, and this is Freddie. He says, but I'm sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around. Apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that. Yeah. Right. So there is your nod. It's almost, and, and so maybe, maybe we need to think about the fact that the context of who Dickens is writing to and their attitude about Christmas at that point and everything. And so maybe he doesn't have to be overt in mentioning the Christianity because their attitude is such a one that they're not going to separate it at all. Whereas we're reading it from a much later lens where people have perverted the message here to make it only about the generosity. And so now uh -huh. the absence of the bringing up Christ and, and everything in the Christmas carol, it means something different now than what it meant to the Victorian. So that would be an interesting thing to look at. Does that make sense? Yeah. It makes sense. I think it gives the Victorians too much credit. I personally wouldn't go that far, but. <laughs> but we all know Misty doesn't like them. <laughs> but, you know, did he or maybe look at the, look at the danger of just assuming uh, something without stating it then you get start you kick off this whole oh come on genre <laughs> i mean come on look at how much was assumed in scripture without actually stating it as far as like the context of who paul was talking to and who his audience was or you know that matthew was writing for the jews or something like that there's all kinds of stuff you have to kind of take into context and have explained to you so you you know well no that context <laughs> but if his content, I'm getting popcorn, this is good. <laughs> but, you know, if, if assumed that there was nothing apart that you could not take Christmas apart from, you know, the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if you couldn't separate it from that, if that is his audience right there, then 
we can't read it through the lens of today and, and come to the same conclusion. I don't know, Brandy, maybe I'll come back over to your side, though I still think it was a little preachy. <laughs> This was so satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do think there is a, well, okay. So how about this to come to the compromise here? Because that's my job, right? <laughs> is that it's probably less Christian than I like to think it is, but more than Misty thinks it is. <laughs> <laughs> we can go with that. <laughs> Well, and, and I really do think there is this, you know, uh, the lens that we're reading it through, it probably has contributed. I do think Misty's right in that it made it easy to take Christ out of Christmas when you, when you have a book like this that's not overt. It does become about Christmas for Christmas sakes. It, it just, it, it makes it really easy to, to secularize it and it still be quote unquote good. Right. Well, and a secular audience just isn't going to see the things that a Christian audience sees in the book, I think, because they are often allusions to things that people aren't going to notice necessarily. Well, and there weren't very many of them. No, no, no. no, There weren't. No, you're right. It's not like it's on every page, but we wouldn't want it to be preachy now, would we? (laughs) It seems preachy anyway. Uh, well, that's why it seems pre. I think it seems moralistic because it is ginned up out of him. Like Scrooge, the change comes out of himself, and it's just about doing the good works without an actual spiritual transformation, like encounter with God. Hmm. And so it kind of has to be moralistic because it's about being a better person by being a better person. I'm trying to decide if I agree with you because I'm getting your, I mean, I get your argument. I'm just, I'm trying to decide. Part of the Victorian issue is that there's more veneer than substance. Hmm. If we look at Dickens and I have, I have read Dickens was quite prolific. So I've read some Dickens. I wouldn't say that I've read a lot of Dickens, but there is definitely, I mean, his angle is always about poverty and money. Right. Or at least that's one of his big angles. I shouldn't say that's the only one because he also seems to have this like, because he's the one who invented Gragrine, right? So he also has this educational, like he stands against drill and kill. And, but again, so maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe it's more like the impersonalization. Because what do those two things have in common with the money thing? What does Scrooge say? Are there no workhouses? Like basically I pay my taxes. Why do I need to care about people too? Right. That I yeah. pay taxes that should be taking care of these people so that they don't bother me. So that's, it's a very impersonal detached sort of way to approach things. And with grad grind in hard times, it's the same kind of thing. Like the n- knowledge is impersonal, detached. It's cold calculating scientific knowledge. It doesn't involve the heart, that there's a disengagement with the heart. And so I think when we look at like this kind of fits what he's always attacking within Victorian culture, which is this idea that, that it's somehow good or acceptable to be detached. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And we just read um, Oliver Twist. Yeah. In my, with my high schoolers last year. And 
And it does, it is, that's definitely a Dickens theme is really, it's who sees a human when they see Oliver Twist Hmm. and who just sees a number, a kind of person, these assumptions that we build up, or are they going to interact with him as a person and, and showing how the poorhouses, the workhouses, the, even the police and all these various institutions actually don't see a person. And so then you could say, well, what, what does the ghost of Christmas present really do? It forces him to get attached, to go inside the homes of people and see, see them for what they are, see them at their best, see them at their worst, see them in sad times. And then you have this whole, like, as it spins out of control at the end of his experience with the ghost of Christmas present, I think we see even this idea of like a common humanity. Yeah. By the end. So like now he can generalize because he actually got attached to some specific people (laughs) somewhere. Hmm. Yeah. He had to maybe undo his detachment from specific people. Hmm. Yeah. Part of his repentance process. I, I did think it was interesting that it was important for him to see the girl, not just in the past, like, cause you know, he sees his breakup with her. But to see her again in the present, having a husband, having a family, having joy, like for him to see the consequences of his choices, that when he chose money, he also chose to not have family, to not have, I mean, and I think for me, that's powerful because I see that a lot in our, in our culture of just these 20 somethings that are like, yeah, I'll, you know, when everything's all when, when all my ducks are in a row, then I'll have kids, right? Mm-hmm. And for some of them, they don't realize that for some of them, they're actually only fertile in their 20s. Nobody tells women that, that it gets harder the older they get. And so, I mean, yeah, we don't all get married in our 20s and I get that. But like for, the, for people putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, and then like for him, he, he was choosing, he's a real extreme situation, right? But he's choosing to pursue prosperity and ended up never having a family, never having love, never having, you know, and I, I, I see that a lot as a trend with millennials, this temptation, not homeschool parents. I mean, there's a lot of millennial homeschool parents and they're totally attached, to, but like this fear of, I, I mean, it is, it's kind of a lack of control, right? Like once you have children, you're like, wow, this is expensive and, you know, cramps your style. And I mean, all the things that we all had to deal with when we became parents, I don't know for him to have to face what he said no to and see visible consequences of that. I think it it is a good reminder to choose. I think it's a reminder to choose people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that might be why I find it powerful because I think I'm tempted to not choose people a lot of the time. Like I'd rather choose my library. (laughs) Well, and, and so that, that begs the question right there is, is, you know, do you stand over here and feel, sanctified in that you've chosen not not the evil money but something else over people you know it's still just as wrong right right it's really not even money so it's just my own personal agenda right like scrooge's is his money mine might mine something else but it's still choosing myself over people yeah my own selfish desires whether that be peace and quiet (laughs) Or, yeah, um, yeah, 
you asked the, who asked the question? I don't know who asked the question in the notes, but you know, is Scrooge happy? And that really is the irony here is that he chose himself. Like we see enough of his personal history to see he has chosen himself over and over and over. And yet he is the least happy person in the story. So it is, I mean, it is interesting because we often choose ourselves thinking that that will make us happy, right? Thinking that we'll find pleasure in that. And he might have some sort of secret twisted pleasure in that, but he's not happy. <laughs> like He's right. not a happy guy. And so that too is one of the things I love about the book because it's a great reminder of when I choose self, that pleasure is fleeting and it's an illusion because it doesn't actually build the kind of life that's enjoyable for humans. We're supposed to live in community, right? Right. I think when I was, you know, reading or listening to the beginning part, that's what struck me is I bet if you had asked Scrooge or what, or had been able to read his mind at that beginning scene, the Christmas Eve scene, I think he would have thought of himself as happy. And he kind of accuses other people of having no reason to be, you know, basically jolly. And he definitely wasn't jolly, but it seemed like he was pursuing what he thought was happiness. And this is what he thought it was. Or, you know, maybe it's just satisfaction or, you know, some other kind of thing. But he was definitely seeking his own good and thought that he had found it. And all these other people were being stupid. And then so he has to like go through this shift to see that actually he wasn't happy and these mm -hmm. other people were. Yeah, that's a good point. And that you could be happy without the things he's choosing. He's seeing people that are way happier than him and they don't have money and they don't have security. They don't have. Right. Those aren't the things that contribute to happiness necessarily. Yeah. So one of the things, I don't, maybe we have enough content here to count as an episode, but <laughs> in, in the, the vein of analyzing, <laughs> I did wonder too, is regret a good or sufficient motivation for change? Because I think that we do sometimes live or make choices in, in fear. It seemed like making a decision or making a change based on fear of future regret it seems to be what it is in the end. Yeah. And I think that we can and do make those same kind of choices on that same basis. But I, I don't think that we should necessarily be encouraged to, to do so. But I think that sometimes even that encouragement is given to like, imagine when the kids move out, what kind of memories do you want them to have? And there's a way to approach that question is like working backwards. Like, okay, I know where I want to go. So that's what I'm going to do now. And then there's a way of asking or answering that question where it's out of fear. Hmm. So there is the line that says, uh, no space of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunity misused. Hmm. So hmm. I think fear in general is not a sustaining motivator. So I think it can be an aspect of motivation, but to take an example of homeschooling, when we have 
people who choose to homeschool out of fear. They're afraid of school shootings or they're afraid of content taught at the school. All of those things are a reality. There are bad things taught at some schools and there are shootings at some schools and there are, but that isn't what's going to get you through a bad homeschool day. Like the, you know what I'm saying? Like the fear. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, so just to, I mean, and that, that is just one example. Well, and I think this is why all three ghosts are required is that even though the ghost of Christmas past is this zinger at the end, he alone, I don't think has the power to transform even for someone who is a Christian and is just, like, if you read this more as sanctification, becoming a better person or something, fear might cause you to buy the turkey the very next day, but I don't I think it's enough to get you it's through. It's not going to be a lasting change. Yeah, it's not going to, you're not going to do it next year. Right. You did it right now. You were scared right now, but fear doesn't last and we can't live in fear all the time. And so those things get pushed away. Like I think about how many times, how many times are fear and guilt there and they might even be real. Like we might be actually guilty, but those two things alone don't actually bring about the change we want to see in our own lives. Right. Well, yeah, I think that's the thing is that no matter what we, there are going to be things that we regret and that things that we didn't do that we could have done. There just always are going to be those things. So we can't make our decisions or try to live in a way that we won't have any, because that's kind of a false expectation. Yeah. But I think you're right, Brandy. I think if, if it were only the ghost of Christmas future and his fear that caused him to wake up the next morning and be a better person, then, you know, it's, it's going to seem shallow. Yeah. To kind of wrap back around to the beginning, you know, you asked me what was the cause of his transformation. And yes, it's true. He doesn't have a gospel encounter. But I was thinking the first ghost, he has to go back, like I said, and face his past and feel some of the feelings that he felt back before he hardened his heart so much. Mm-hmm. And then, and then in Christmas present, he has to go into all these people's houses, as we say, and view them as actual humans. So he has to grow his heart a little bit, right? So first his heart kind of softens and then he is introduced to relationships and seeing people as humans. And then at the end we have death really and I know it makes his death look awful. You know, nobody loves him. Nobody mourns him, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, I think it's, we're all afraid of death, right? And that reminder some, that to get sometimes that life is short and it's shorter than we think. And we don't actually know when it's going to end. That reminder there is appropriate at times. You know, you hear people say, live every day like it's your last. Oh my gosh, that's exhausting. You can't actually do that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's all three things you know, how, how do, how do we move forward in life? I think those three things actually are things all of us have to do. Just mm-hmm. we need the gospel to make it possible to actually have transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that stories like this, that they help us by giving us categories mm-hmm. for like, don't be a Scrooge. Like that's actually a helpful category to have. Yeah. And that's the power of stories is I can say, well, which character am I more like? Or given a specific situation, the action that I choose, which character would do that? Or what would this character do? Like it can help us make decisions or help us see our situation in a different light. 
And that's part of the power of stories. And, you know, this is clearly not a complete, it's like, it's not the same as some of Dickens' other novels, because like Pam pointed out earlier, the characters are extremes. So I think they're supposed to be types. Yeah. The characters are either very, very good or very, very bad, but not necessarily. Yeah, I thought that was interesting where Pam's not evil, just so this, I think this is more of a type, a characterization of selfish versus generous Hmm. and what that looks like. And, you know, I mean, this was this, too, was a political book as well. I mean, Dickens was making a political statement with this book. So if you think about things that try to reach the masses to make a political statement, very rarely do they have great depth, you know? Hmm. I mean, he was trying to win consideration for the poor in Great Britain Mm -hmm. at that time and, you know, speak out against the workhouses and those kinds of things. And so when you think about the purpose of this book. That's true. I mean, I didn't think about it, but, you know, it's not like people like Bob Cratchit are going to be the ones reading it. Yeah, you're only meant to see yourself in the book if you're like Scrooge. Or you're 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 meant to see the Scrooge in yourself. In yourself. Yeah. Like yes. no matter how Scroogey you are. I mean, if you're really Scroogey, you know, you're meant to see and nobody's that Scroogey. Nobody is as Scroogey as Scrooge. So, <laughs> you know, you're meant to see the Scrooge in yourself by comparing it up against this this kind of embodiment of selfishness. And it, it kind of like brings out your own, like, how am I being selfish? You know, what am I? So, right. and that's why it comes across as more preachy is because they are extreme types yeah. instead of being rounded uh, where we, we are going to have some regrets and we're going to have some of both of these yes. ourselves. But it's like, well, which one am I currently cultivating more of right now? Yeah. Okay. So parting thoughts. I think um, my parting thought is the other Charles did it better. Charles Schultz. I'm, I'm, I'm going <laughs> yeah. to him. Uh, I like it. I like it. I'm going to him. We need a Linus. Yep. We need a Linus. So that's the thing missing from Christmas Carol. I will accept that. I still love it, but I will accept that. Anything else? Sounds good. I think that was good. All right. Well, thanks, ladies. It was nice talking to you. All right. You're welcome. That's it for today. And that's not just it for today. That's it for the whole season. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast. If I could give you one piece of advice, it'd be to double check and make sure you are subscribed. As usual, we're taking almost two months off for our winter break. Subscribing means that you'll know immediately when we're back. We've got some very exciting things in the works for 2019 that you won't want to miss. Remember, our show notes can always be found at scalaysisters.com. Just add a slash, SS, and then the episode number. So for example, this episode is number 46. And so the show notes are found at scalaysisters.com slash SS46. With that said, the three of us, God willing, will be back sometime in February 2019. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone. So open up your eyes 
and look around you. Find your sisters. Am I the only one with a scully every day? No. I got it. I just didn't prep it now. You guys just aren't telling me in advance. It's like a big surprise. <laughs> Uh oh. <laughs> that wasn't me. <laughs> I just got a message on Slack from Pam that says she's kicked out of the chat. She's not here? Pam? <laughs> I thought she was being quiet and I was like, I'm winning. Finally, I'm winning. <laughs> <laughs> we just can't hear her. <laughs>